Welcome to River Life Podcasts. We're a church family embracing the Father's presence, releasing empowered people to declare and demonstrate Christ's kingdom. We trust that God would use what you hear today to bless and grow you so that you would be a blessing to those around you. For more information about River Life Baptist Church, go to riverlifechurch.org.au or find us on social media. We are into the second part of a, really a, a four-part series, but we're looking at the three gifts of Christmas, and then I'm going to look at the ultimate gift, that of Jesus, on uh, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And uh, last week, we had the opportunity to have a look at, uh, Pastor Joe talked to, uh, through this opportunity uh, around its gifts, and he talked about frankincense and the whole idea that this was to do with the divinity of Jesus. And uh, he explored into Matthew where it's the only place in the Gospels that we actually find these gifts mentioned. It's the only place out of the four Gospels where we hear of the Magi coming, these three wise men. Well, we assume there were three. There's three gifts, so we're just kind of lumping the three gifts onto the three wise men. But the idea of these foreign travelers coming to be able to pay homage to Jesus as the king. And Matthew is predominantly writing to a bunch of Israelite people. He's trying to convince Convince them with all of their Old Testament understanding, with all of the understanding of the promises of God through the prophets of God of old, that this is the receiving of our King. This is Jesus. He is the answer to what has come previously. And so he writes in such a way to convince his audience that this is the Messiah, this is the anointed one. He is the sent one that we've talked about all through these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years previously. And he's presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of all of these promises, promises that God would be with his people. And yet they just come out of 400 years of silence, of not hearing from God. Promises that God would appoint a king who would look after their people, who would protect them, and yet for centuries they've been under foreign rule. These promises said that God would give his people a new heart, a soft heart, not a hard heart, that he was going to make a new covenant with them. He was going to make a a new agreement, a new promise with them as, as Yahweh, as God with his people and that he would enter into this newfound covenant work with his people on earth. And Matthew is trying to to help people understand that Jesus, in fact, is the fulfillment. He is the long-awaited one of God that has come, just like Isaiah has said, just like others had prophesied. He was going to establish the kingdom of God on earth. And one of the first things Matthew chooses that no one else does because of the audience he's speaking to is to put this in the context of these three special gifts that are given because they have such symbolic meaning to them. Frankincense, the divinity of Jesus. And today, gold. A gold, a gift fit for a king. I don't know how many gold things you own. Uh, Some of you may own a lot more than others. I own one gold thing. Here it is on my hand. That's about it. 
But I remember when I was buying my wife's engagement ring and, and the wedding rings and all of those sorts of things, I, I can remember looking around trying to find just the right gift, just the right engagement ring, the thing that would say, I love you, you are precious to me, you are special, I, I'm, I'm giving, you know, you're, you're the one, you're it, that's it, let's, let's do this together and let's seal it off with a little promise of a ring that, that says that we're going to be ours together, we're going to be for one another, we're not going to be anybody else. We're going to seal it with this ring, as it were. I can remember saving up all my dollars. I was a, a young uh, graduate teacher, and I was saving as much as I could. I was looking to squirrel away money so that I could just buy that right ring, that right gift. It was the first gold thing I had ever bought in my life. <laughs> Pretty much close, unfortunately. My wife says that it's the last gold thing I've probably ever bought as well. But throughout history, in all manner of cultures, the precious metal, this luxurious in its appearance, given as gifts, special artifacts, it's covered all sorts of religious symbols. Gold is precious throughout the world, and it still is today. It's been found and used for domestic and ritual vessels and objects throughout the course of history. But primarily, gold has been associated with wealth, with money. Gold is mentioned throughout the Bible. You can find it way back in the beginning in Genesis, and it goes all the way through to the end at Revelation where it's mentioned again. That, that time where God will create a new heaven and earth, and the streets are going to be paved with gold. As you go through the scriptures, it Gold featured prominently in, in God's instructions of how he made this tabernacle, the place where he would dwell with his people. And the artifacts there are symbolically covered with gold. And so we can assume it holds special significance and meaning, this precious metal to God. Royalty throughout the ages, and it doesn't seem to matter again what culture you go to, have used gold as this symbol of power and wealth and prestige. Gold carriages, gold crowns, gold ornaments. And so this gift of gold brought to Jesus not only symbolizes his royalty, a gift that is fit for a king, it provides currency for Mary and Joseph. The Magi, however, they were way ahead of everyone else in recognizing that this infant boy Jesus was indeed a king. Matthew, writing in hindsight, is trying to convince the Jewish audience that Jesus is the prophesied king mentioned in the Old Testament. And he uses this gift of gold to emphasize that this is the promised king. You see, for hundreds of years, Israel had looked for a king. They'd looked through their scriptures. They remembered the glory days of Israel under King David and King Solomon. God raised up David, this royal leader who would be a faithful on behalf of an unfaithful people. Yet even he, as a leader, had his failures. 
So God promised that there would be this ideal leader for Israel who would come in the future in the line of David, where God promised that this faithful king would arise and lead Israel towards God's ways. The king would rule over all the nations forever and ever. David himself was not that king. His descendants were not those kings either. Although the people of Israel remembered the the turmoil that came with a, a divided kingdom and the ups and downs that came with the kings that followed, they had some good kings and and lived in prosperity under kings like Uzziah and Hezekiah. The times where they were victorious over their enemies. And of course, you know how it is when you you look back at something, you remember how good it was. You you tend to minimize the bad things. I can remember doing a hike into the southwest of Tasmania and uh, we were out and it was about day number four of this hike and it was absolutely miserable. It was cold, it was wet, We could not see more than 20 meters in front of us. The fog was so thick. I pulled at the end of that day 30 leeches off each leg of my body. We nearly lost our campsite and half the party we were camping with. We nearly fell off cliffs. We had to cross raging rivers. But I look back at that time And all I remember actually was just how wonderful it was. How fantastic an adventure it was. I don't remember the misery of the cold and the the, the sleet and the half snowy kind of weather conditions we were in in the middle of summer for goodness sakes. I just remember how adventurous it was, how fun it was that we actually made it out at the end. We even laughed about pulling leeches out of body parts that no leech should ever go to. This is the way of the Israelites. They look back at their days of having a king in charge of them. And they remembered the good old days. That's, they remembered these good kings, they, not so much the bad ones. It was that way because they'd been without a king for so long. N- nearly six centuries since there was a king from David's line in Jerusalem. Think about it. That's like us remembering back to the Middle Ages since there was a king in charge that was of the lineage that God had promised would be the king of all kings. For almost 600 years, Jerusalem had been occupied by foreign powers, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. And there was this brief window where they tried to take up being kings again of their own people, and that didn't work out. And all the Jews had to have during those 600 years of oppression, of foreign domination, all they had to look forward to was the prophecy. But they weren't the only ones that were looking out for a king. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 2 in our passage again that we're basing ourselves in for the next couple of weeks. Matthew 
And it says this in verses 1 and 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? He saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Herod the Great was known as the king of the Jews. He was a renowned massive builder of his day. He had building projects of extending the temple and a port and uh, major fortresses around the area. But you've got to understand, this guy wasn't even a Jew. This, he's an imposter king. He's there to serve the Roman rule, and he was not a Jew. In fact, he was from a tribe the Jews actually not like at all. And so from an Israelite perspective, he should not have been ruling over them. But he was this political madman who sought glory, who sought grandeur, and a kingly palace. Herod panicked every time he thought someone else was going to take over his kingship. We know from historians that he had always been afraid of that. And when one of his family members was going to overthrow him, he murdered one of his wives and her mother, two of his sons and his own eldest son, just to ensure that he remained king. Herod's reaction to this potential new heir to the throne, it's written down for us there, that he was disturbed and all of Israel with him. Why the whole nation was disturbed? Because they knew what a, an evil king this guy was. He wasn't there representing them. He's not their king. He's king for his own self and for the Roman Empire. And they're afraid because they know just what this madman is like when he feels threatened, when there's jealousy, when there's fear at play. And the Magi, they had absolutely no idea what they were walking into. They have no idea why others wouldn't receive the news of this new and hopeful king who might rule in peace. Be a positive thing instead of the negative at which it was taken. They couldn't comprehend that Herod may have had another agenda that we go to read on later in Matthew when he sends them off to find this baby and to lead the way. I mean, they traveled the, the whole world just for the opportunity to worship a baby king and offer him a gift. Who wouldn't be excited about the chance for the world, the possibility of a leader who could really bring peace and stability? But that wasn't the reality. There was a clash of kingdoms and no one really would understand at the time how King Jesus was going to reign. Ever been uh, planning that favorite holiday? Are we almost back there yet? Are we almost to a place where we feel confident enough to dream about a holiday and going somewhere? 
And the further off it is, and the more uh, unexplored territory that you're entering into, you get as much information as you can to make sure you're going to get your bang for your buck, right? I, I remember when we traveled to Europe as a married couple for the first time, we wanted to make sure that everything was going to count. And you're looking and you're researching and you're wanting to find the, the best places to visit, the best places to stay, the tourist event of the century that you want to make sure that you go to. And you pick up these brochures and I find myself not reading what they actually say, but what I want them to say. Oh, this Colosseum tour is absolutely amazing. You actually get to dress in Gladiator because there's a picture of gladiators. Like, maybe there's going to be a real line that we can actually, you know, come up against. I'm, this, this is the tour for us. This is just going to be unbelievable, you know. This is fantastic. I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I, I read what I want it to say rather than what it actually says. Because we get excited. We, we want it to be like that. And for hundreds of years, throughout all the occupations that they had endured, the Israelites read and they studied the Old Testament prophecies. But the problem was they didn't read them for what they said. They read them for what they wanted them to say. They were looking for a political king. They wanted the Messiah, the anointed one, this king to come in, ride in on his white horse and take over everything and boot the Romans out, get King Herod off the throne, reestablish their territory, rule with an iron fist and be the king who would come and rule over the nations forever and ever. And this is what they're looking for. Place where they could control their own destiny. But that was just the point. They still didn't get it. They weren't able to handle their own destiny. God called them back in Exodus 32 when they'd fled from Egypt. He said, you stiff-necked people. They were fallen, stubborn, lost. And that's why they needed a king to save them from their spiritual problems, not their political problems. The prophecies promised that Jesus would save them from their sins, not their difficulties. Scripture promised that Jesus would restore a relationship with God their Father, not their wealth and power here on earth. An Old Testament prophecy promised that Jesus would defeat sin, not Rome. Of course, the Roman ruler, King Herod, he saw things exactly the same as the Israelites. He's afraid that there is someone coming that will throw him off his throne. And he and his Roman officials are looking out for the next military coup. Compare and contrast for a moment the kingdom of Herod as to the kingdom of Jesus, the one that he was ushering in. Quite staggering in contrast from even what the Israelites had hoped for. You have Jesus coming to establish a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of righteousness, motivated by love and compassion, compared to a megalomaniac king who's supposed to be looking after the welfare of his people, but instead commits genocide. 
Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, it says, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. The contrast of these two kingdoms is is just so, so vastly different. The understanding of everyone, whether it's King Herod or the Israelites who are waiting for this king to usher in this rule, it's kind of been missed by everybody. Jesus himself, when he neared his end of his time on earth and his trial before being sentenced to death, said this in John chapter 18. It said, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. My kingdom is not of this world. N.T. Wright explains that in essence what the, the Greek means in that sentence is that Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not out of it or from this world. Jesus says, my kingdom, unlike Herod's kingdom, Unlike the Roman Empire, isn't one that grows in this world in and of itself. Those kingdoms, they grow by violence. If my kingdom was like yours, Jesus says, my followers would have picked up swords, they would have defended, they would have fought for, they would have used violence to rescue me from this position. But my kingdom is not from here. My kingdom is from God. My kingdom is from heaven, but it is for this world. When Pilate sends Jesus to the cross with a plaque that read over his head, King of the Jews, Every Jewish onlooker would have known that this had to do with the the kingdom vision like out of places from the Old Testament, like Psalm chapter 2. And Pilate really was saying something that he didn't even understand in that Jesus really is the king of the world and it begins properly upon the resurrection of Jesus. His authority His authority to rule isn't from this world, but indeed his kingdom is one which is for this world. And Jesus will one day return, creating a new heaven and earth and will be king of all the earth and will reign forever and ever. Amen. In the reign of his kingdom, it looks just so different to the kingdoms of this world. 
God at home amongst his people. He will live there with him and be with his people. God himself will be with us. He will wipe every tear from every eye. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of those things will have gone forever. And the basic claim of the gospel stories in the New Testament is that Jesus was that faithful king in the line of David. He was the one to whom this entire story has been pointing all along. The Magi were searching for truth and purpose and spiritual reality and they recognized that Jesus, Jesus was central to the future of the world. They weren't threatened by the truth of who Jesus was, like Herod. But the sad reality is that this Christmas there will be so many people, your neighbours, your work colleagues, your friends, maybe even family, who will view Christmas through the eyes of people like Herod. I don't mean that they'll, they'll commit atrocities like Herod did. I, I, not some type of psycho ruler. Although maybe we all have a boss like that, I'm not sure. But some people today are fearfully jealous of losing their own self-determination. Or like the Israelites, thought that's what they want. I want to be in control. We want our self-determination. We want our king so that we can rule. And God says, you're not fit, you stiff-necked people. You don't get it. You can't rule. I need to rule. They don't want to come to Jesus because it might cramp their style. Because really, the problem with the human race is we all want to be king. Jesus will lay claim for their life and that means that they'll have to alter the way they live, the way they think, the way they talk, the way they act. We have a world of kings who are not about to bow their knee to Jesus and so we miss the truth of Christmas just like Herod, just like the majority of Israel. And the heart of Christmas lies in the incredible truth that the Magi only partially recognized and that Herod completely missed. That this little toddler, this kid somewhere between being a newborn and under two years of age, unbelievable as it seems, was actually God's son. Emmanuel, God with us, this whole idea of this frankincense who came from heaven to help us understand how much God cares and set us free from rebellion against our creator through his own sacrificial death and eventually to judge and to rule the world as king. But as he rules the world as king, does he rule your world as king? That's an amazing life-giving truth. It's, it's worth abandoning everything for. Jesus put it this way. 
He tells a story in Matthew chapter 13, and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that is hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, he went and sold all he had, and he bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls, Jesus says. When he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had, and he bought it. Jesus goes on and says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in the hidden field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like these pearls. He's trying to remind us, he's trying to get us to understand that when we find something of great value, it is worth everything to possess it. Knowing Christ is worth more than anything else in this world. In fact, knowing Christ is worth more than everything else in this world. We'll never be disappointed by him. But the way you find him as king is to understand that you are not. To bow your knee humbly before him, the real king. Not only who will rule and reign in this world, this new heaven and earth, and when he returns, will we'll establish and reign forever and ever over all the nations. But does he reign in here? Is he your king? Have you bowed your knee to him? In our honest attempts at Christmas, to celebrate this truth and to worship God's Son, we so easily obstruct it with the peripheral, all the stuff, the presents, the food, the tinsel, the glitter. And there's so many people who celebrate Christmas. I heard just recently on social media that someone complained about a carol service that there was too much about Jesus. The report's right back in and saying, Christ, dot, 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 mass, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) They'll remember the baby, maybe, who was born 2,000 years ago. Think nice thoughts towards others. They might even pray for peace on heaven as it is, on earth as it is in heaven. And it'll be a good Christmas for them. They'll enjoy their day off. Perhaps the challenge for us with all that familiarity that surrounds Christmas is to realize the truth that's central to the celebration. His name is King Jesus. And that's how they came to worship him. They came to worship him as the king These magi, they knew something because they'd seen it in the stars. That someone had entered into our world to be rightfully the king that had been prophesied of old. But you still can easily miss it if you don't want to humble yourself to put him as king. Because his kingdom is not of this world, it's of another world, but it is for this world. His kingdom's reign is for your prosperity. His kingdom's reign is for 
your benefit. But if we go through looking for a king who's going to usher his way in and throw all the other stuff out, and one day he will return in such a manner. But right now, the way in which he has come is in such a humble fashion, open to everybody, and requests and requires that we humble ourselves to put him as king. Allow him to be in control, to abandon our agendas, our desires, and our priorities to offer worship to Jesus. We focus on King Jesus. We bow our knee to the King of Kings. And of course, he didn't stay a baby. He lived that perfect life. He, he died a death that no one else could, a cruel and painful one on a cross to take the punishment of our sin. But then he rose from the dead. And all of that so that through faith in Him, we could be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life with this King. In a kingdom unlike any other we've ever experienced. What do you need to do to put Jesus back on the throne of your life? Maybe you know Him already as King, but maybe with all the other distractions and all the other busyness, the priority of actually worshipping Him as King has taken a backward seat. I don't see how it can if He's our King. <laughs> Will you rush into Christmas Day or Christmas Eve services hoping that it, it's titillating and fanciful and your favourite carols are sung and it's quick and it's sharp and it was a family event, we can all leave and go do the real deal? Or will you enter into this next couple of weeks with the understanding that He is King. We come to worship Him. That is the most important thing of Christmas. Perhaps for the very first time, you're just starting to understand that if He truly is King and one day He's gonna reign forever and ever, I, I wanna be in that kingdom. And so I want to turn my heart towards Jesus, receive His forgiveness and put Him as King. Bow my knee before Him. And I'd like to invite you to do that today if that is you and it'll be the most wonderful Christmas with a whole new meaning that you could ever have. And when we do these things, we follow in the footsteps of these Magi who, who bought these gifts from the other side of the world to proclaim who Jesus really was. What do you bring to lay before Him now? So let's close our eyes, just spend a moment. Let's spend a moment just thinking about and asking Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what is it? that I need to do to put you back on the throne, Jesus, as King, that rightful position that only you deserve. Maybe it's a reprioritization of what Christmas is gonna look like. Maybe it's about changing the way you think.
Maybe it's about decluttering and finding the space to come and worship Him as King. Maybe it's as simple as just saying, God, I'm jumping off that throne. It's far too big for me to sit in. And I've wanted my own self-determination. I've wanted my own way. I've wanted it to look just the way I want it to look. It's to my life to be just the way I want it to be. I've been trying to manipulate circumstance. I've been trying to see how I could have my way. But I'm reminded again from your word today that you are the only fit king to bow my knee to. And I jump off the throne of my life and I put you again back where you belong. And I bow my knee. And I place you again as king, as Lord. King of kings. Lord of Lords and perhaps this is the first time you've done this and you might just want to say Jesus thank you thank you for coming thank you that you didn't stay a baby thank you that you, you lived a perfect life thank you for your death that paid the penalty of my sin and gave me your righteousness thank you for your forgiveness Thank you for the life that I find in you, for you did not stay in the grave, but you have risen. You are alive and you are well. And one day you will return. And I bow my knee now so that I can be in your kingdom forever. We pray this with sincerity, Jesus. We pray it from the bottom of our hearts. In your wonderful name, thank you for all you've done our King of Kings. Amen. Thanks for listening to this River Life podcast. Make sure you subscribe to keep up to date with all the latest content. If this podcast has raised any questions for you, contact us via church at riverlifechurch.org.au or through Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening.